HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Square. If you run a restaurant or business, Square has the tools to help you stay connected to your customers. Shift your business and navigate this uniquely challenging time. Learn more at square.com slash go slash snacky. Hello, and welcome to Snacky Tunes. I am one half your host, Greg Bresnitz. Thank you for tuning in to our ongoing coverage of how the coronavirus is affecting the restaurant industry. The COVID-19 pandemic has shut down America's hospitality industry, financially imperiling many of its workers. Anna Polonsky, a longtime friend of the Tunes, has partnered with Gaylene Quinn to develop the hashtag AskChefsAnything campaign to support the industry's immigrant workforce who are severely lacking access to government unemployment assistance. Hashtag AskChefsAnything has established auctions that give bidders a chance to win one-on-one, 30-minute online sessions with their favorite chef or other food experts with the proceeds benefiting immigrant workers. The New York edition included industry luminaries such as Eric Repair, Enrique Oliveira, Allison Roman, and Gail Simmons. It just wrapped up this weekend, far surpassing its goals, with LA and other cities on the horizon. We also returned to check in with our good buddy, singer-songwriter Fletcher C. Johnson, making his semi-annual return to the show. Fletcher and his wife recently battled COVID-19 and are thankfully on the mend. Fletcher was gracious enough to play some songs for us from his quarantine in Brooklyn. Be sure to check out Fletcher's latest album, Are You Feeling It? If you have a story about how your business is being affected by COVID-19, please reach out to us at info at snackytunes.com. Thank you for listening, and please enjoy this week's episode. We talk about food. We talk about music. With musical dudes. Finger on the pulse. Snacky Tunes. Can't even go out when it's raining. I don't wanna lie around no more. I never confuse my good intentions with yours. Send me news about my unemployment status. I've been loitering round the dollar tree. I need to log into bed out on a little TV. Cause I've been trapped in my home.
I'm one half your host, Greg Bresnitz. Um, on today's episode, following our COVID-19 coverage, we have Anna Polanski from Polanski and Friends. Welcome back to the show. Hello. Hi. Um, I think you were one of our earliest food guests when you were on as the fooding and were on subsequent years. Um, so it is good to hear you again and uh, to have been following along what you've been up to. How are you doing yeah. in these trying times? <laughs> well, thank you for the opportunity, first of all. I mean, I was actually remembering that first episode we did together at Roberta's and we were eating pizza, and it just seems like such a different world than now to be on the phone. Um, yeah. But, yeah, no, look, I'm, I'm, I'm good. You know, thankfully I'm healthy and um, I have space to move at home, and, and I have a, a great husband I live with. I, I just feel really grateful in general, but um, it's been very disconcerting, and I've been actually buried in work 
um, since the epidemic has started. Um, not only client works, which again, thankfully, I still have a few clients on board, but also just doing a lot of um, leading a lot of community initiatives and trying to help right now. Um, because we had actually discussed uh, maybe about a year ago, um, a little bit more than that, about your change in focus and the type of work that you wanted to do. Um, you'd been at the fooding, you've I think done like the epitome of the cool kid food stuff, been to all the parties, you've drank all the natural wine, you've eaten all the delicious things. Uh, and I think that you were going through maybe a bit of an existential uh, crisis or, or thought period and you wanted to do something different, um, especially with the kind of winding down of the MP shift and moving into Polanski and Friends. Uh, can you kind of give a, a better sense of your mindset and, and where your focus has really lay in the last year or so? Yeah, totally. I mean, it, it's an interesting progression. So, I mean, you, you summarized it pretty well, but the fooding was definitely my initiation to working in the food industry. And, you know, for those who are not familiar, it's a really big food guide in France, and they were some of the first to challenge the the misleading conception of what good food was. So they were some of the first to talk about different types of dining and gastronomy and wine bars, but also to incorporate graphic design in their food media um, and a lot of creativity in their food events. I mean, Greg, that's how we met. So you've been, you know, there was always really impressive set design and curation and mixing art and food. So I'm sort of saying that because and how that's my background and how everything I've done next is sort of a mix of all that. It's so everything I've mm-hmm. done is always mixing food and um, and design and art, but also working with brands and just trying to create interesting experiences. Um, and after I left, I was in New York. I had started um, to develop the company, the footing in New York and LA. Um, and um, for a moment, I was helping chefs how to do their own marketing, and I realized that often the problem was not so much marketing itself, but there was just no cohesive storytelling. You know, you would have incredible chefs who might not know um, how to translate their vision into interiors or who might have lots of different agencies involved not working together. So I thought there was some room for a more um, holistic creative agency. Um, and so at that point, I, I partnered with an old friend, and we created the MP Shift um, in 2014. And that was one of the first, if not the first, 360 creative agency for hospitality. Um, and, you know, that was an amazing journey. I mean, I definitely learned a lot. Um, I, I became much more hands-on in terms of design because I actually became an interior designer and, and a full-on um, creative director. Um, so it's been great, but the company grew really fast. We won a Jim Spirit Award um, in our third year for interior design, and then after that it was just bigger and bigger clients and working more and more with clients who were great people but not so passionate about food itself. They were more interested in using hospitality to promote um, for instance, residential real estate, you know, like they would want us to do food courts or um, temporary concept just to promote other things. And it was nothing wrong in itself, but for me, I mean, I'm really, my, my passion is really food and that's really my background. So that's when I started to have my, to have my existential crisis, as you were saying. I just was doing mm-hmm. bigger and bigger projects, making more money, getting more press, but I was just losing a purpose a little bit and why I was doing those things. Um, and, you know, I think at the same time, the political climate in the U.S. was really chaotic, as it's been for the past few years. Um, and I was 
more and more trying to think, what, you know, what's my role in this and what can I do to help and what's better than food um, can be used as a medium to federate people instead of dividing them, which is really what's been the threat politically uh, the best two years. So after five years of empty ships, um, I decided to do something else. My partner and I split, um, and I started this new consultancy uh, a year ago now called Polonsky and Friends. Um, and the name is a little funny, uh, but that was really this idea of, you know, I'm, I'm a creative director. I, I can do design. I can conceive strategies. But really all of that comes to life thanks to a, a big network of incredible talents and friends. I mean, I couldn't do anything without my graphic designers and without architects and without copywriters and media. So it's really this idea of working on more purposeful, mission-driven projects with Polanski and friends and, and trying to give opportunities and to collaborate with as many talents as possible. Um, yeah. so that, you know, that's been going well, and I'm really, really happy with the clientele I have uh, right now. It's a, just like before, a mix of independent chefs and bigger groups, but they all have this common point of really caring about something bigger than just having a cool restaurant. You know, so some of them care about sustainability, some about diversity, some about uh, education, wellness. There are different purposes, but in any case, uh, I'm here to help and try to convey that. So then, you know, coronavirus hit. Um, Hold on. Before, yeah. before coronavirus, before, before, because we will, I promise we will get to it. Um, <laughs> it, it didn't, okay. uh, the, the mission-driven part of this and, like, the, the idea of, like, a triple bottom line is really key. Um, and, and what role do you see chefs in the culinary world? And you can also kind of touch on the, the leadership, but what, what role do you see them in playing, um, being the voice, the vocal pieces for social issues and raising awareness and being at the front and center of these different issues. What is the role of chefs in all that you're saying? Yeah. 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 Mm -hmm. Um, Well, I just think they have an incredible, they're in an incredible position to, to be heard, you know, because people love food. (laughs) Um, they come to a restaurant with a good, I think, preconception. You know, you don't go somewhere if you hate the food or hate the chef. So to be able to go to a place with, a, with to be in the right disposition and then to, be, to learn when you're there, to learn that the food that you eat is coming from a certain place or that the staff that's been making your food is going through certain, you know, social issues. I mean, there are many things that can be conveyed through a meal in a restaurant you like. Um, and, and I think food really has the power of just... Uh, you know, gathering people and, and making them um, more open about talking. Uh, I, I'm working on a documentary at the moment that's about gastro diplomacy in the Middle East and how a lot of countries are at war in that area of the world, but yet they have a very similar food culture. And so how can you use that to, to bring people together at the table? And I think this idea of gastro diplomacy just is valid in general. You know, there's a lot you can convey um, through good food, in my opinion. No. Okay, so to, now to current events. So uh, early March, coronavirus hits, um, and you know we're curious about documenting this from all different sides of the culinary and food industry. Um, how have you been affected, and, and what was the kind of snowball effect that you saw as this took over in the weeks to follow? Right. Well, I think at first I will, I just couldn't imagine. I, I couldn't believe. You know, I was uh, one of the less people at my studio just going there and working and and then the quarantine um, was was imposed and so you know I started to realize 
how difficult it was going to be. And also the husband of mine I mentioned has cafes. So I was also on the first line seeing, you know, how little help restaurants were going to get, how landlords were going to keep charging rent, um, how purveyors were not going to be paid, and just all, all this tragedy that's been happening for restaurants. Um, so in the meantime, I was pretty lucky myself. I have a lot of restaurants, um, clients who haven't opened yet, and they, you know, it's going to be difficult for them, but they're going to delay their opening, and, and they should open as, you know, as planned. Um, but so, so, you know, I had the luxury of still being able to work, still having a team, but on the other end, seeing all this tragedy around me and for my industry. So it was obvious for me that I had to, to try to help and, yeah use my platform to, to do something for my clients and the industry that feeds me. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's incredible. So, I mean, you, you're currently working on two projects, but let's start with the, the apron first, uh, ahead of the, the musical break. So uh, take us through your partnership with Braggart and, and how that came about. Yeah, And totally. who is Braggart, for those who don't know? <laughs> so full disclosure, Bargard is part of my family. So uh, Bargard is this really old school, really iconic um, uniform designer. They've been providing aprons and jackets to, you know, all the mission star chefs around the world for decades. Um, and uh, even though the, my family is sold in France, it's still my cousin in the U.S. Who, who's in charge of um, of the branch. Um, and so just like me, you know, when, the, when COVID happened, he just saw all his clientele, and his clientele is people like Daniel Blue or Eric Rupert, you know, just suddenly have to lay off so many people and just being so, so anxious. So he thought, okay, I should really try to create something. Um, and then he called me and he asked me, you know, knowing that I was looking to work on more mission-driven initiatives, asked me if I wanted to help design that special apron with the idea that all the proceeds would go to an organization um, supporting the restaurants. Um, so, you know, it, it, that was a really quick turnaround. We uh, brainstormed for a week on what org- organization to help. Um, we decided to go with the um, uh, Restaurant Employee Relief Fund, which is um, it's been set up by the National Restaurant Association Educational Fund, um, which is the philanthropy branch of the National Restaurant Association. Um, and for us, it was important to work with them because they could help restaurant workers nationally. Um, and also, it's a really established organization, so there was full traceability of how the, the money was used. Um, so my team, you know, my team jumped in. Um, I have those two awesome designers in my team, Claire and Margaret, um, and quickly we decided to look into symbols for, for, you know, how to bring peace and how to bring relief. Um, and so the dough became an object and started to explore the dough symbol and get really inspired by uh, Picasso's dough, which is probably the most famous dough in the art world. Um, and he, he created his dough when his friend Matisse died. The dough he created is very Matisse-inspired, much more than anything Picasso has done in the past. And that was uh, as, a, as a thank you to his friend Matisse and the idea, again, of bringing peace and relief. So we just used that symbol, got inspired by it, evolved it a little bit, and then added the, the chef hat, which was our symbol. Um, and, you know, I think there's been an interesting initiative because I really, I mean, we were happy to work on it and we thought there was a nice, uh, a nice image and a nice message. Um, but little by little, we started to sell much more than we thought and a lot of chefs started to promote it. Um, incredible friends around the world started to buy it. And, you know, within a month, we had raised $25,000 for the song. So it just, 
you know, I know some people can raise a million in a week, but for, for such a small structure as mine, it was just really, really encouraging to see that even a drop in the ocean can, can move the needle. Um, and that's sort of how the second initiative came um, to life, if you want me to talk about the, the I, I do. We're going to take a quick, we're going to take a quick musical break, play a song yeah. from our archives, and we'll be back with Anna Polanski here on Snacky Tunes on Heritage Radio. One, two, three, four. Probably thought about it too Otherwise I'll never leave my oven My arms and legs are a soft with you Come pick me up in the morning And we can find a hole to crawl into We're still pretending to be lightweight My arms and legs are a soft Wow, behind his smile is nothing Long has a signal to the wandering eye Anytime I'll leave my coffin gladly Moms and legs that would grow soft and die Someone broke into my heart Beat it into my head Several hours to drive home We'll fall asleep instead So, so think it over Just think it over Don't let me down Just think it over Just think it over I'll be around of the braggart apron and how many aprons did you sell uh, or continue to sell uh, at the rec- time of this recording uh, so we're at about 1500 aprons sold right now wow. um, and you know we're I'm still waiting on mine by the way <laughs> well, we've I got been a little custom. bit overwhelmed by the, by the demand. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the, the little Brogard workshop right now is just full, full steam ahead. But, yeah. Um, yeah, it's going to be available for another two weeks. So, you know, hopefully we can sell another 500 and, and reach the $30,000 goal. That would be amazing. Amazing. So you, you did this, um, and, you know, for most people, they could have stopped there because they have raised $25,000 and that would have been good enough, but 
it wasn't enough for you. Um, uh, and there was another issue that you felt after the PPP came out um, that ignored a significant part of the restaurant industry, which is the immigrant um, community, which I think that if you've been following along um, with Jose Andres and um, the Naomi and Nina Compton's uh, speak this, uh, speech this week, um, you're just seeing that there's all these people who are left in the shadows that make up the backbone and the heart of the restaurant industry that are just not available I do not have the funds um, or access to funds available to them, even if they're paying taxes. So what is it that struck a chord in you, and how did you decide to take action against it? Right. So what happened is that um, actually the topic I was working on after the apron was really trying to look into how to help farmers because we talk a lot about farm waste and how they need to donate to food banks, but it's more difficult than that logistically, number one. And number two, we need to find a solution beyond donations. I mean, we, those farmers also need to make money if we want to if we want to keep eating well. And, you know, right now the whole, the, literally the farm-to-table movement that's been popular for 30 years is at stake. I mean, it, this could disappear in the next few months. So I trying to work on that, but it was really difficult. Um, you know, a lot of NGOs work with farmers, and they're totally buried in work themselves right now and just don't have time to take calls. And so I was just starting to get a little frustrated because I wanted to help, and I, and I couldn't help them. And then looking into farms, obviously, started to look into the immigrant workforce because a lot of farmers work with immigrants. Um, and right at that time, my friend Gailene Queen called me, and Gaylin has worked in food forever as well. She's the, she started the Bogota Food and Wine Festival in Colombia. She's a, she's a consultant for many restaurants. She teaches at the new school. So she, she's also been in this network for a while. And so she herself had had this idea of doing an auction for immigrant workers. And she had worked with Chef Warehouse in the past. Chef Warehouse is one of the best um, and biggest um, wholesale distributor for, for food, for restaurants. Um, so she knew that we could get highly discounted rates for, for groceries working with them. Um, and so, you know, she thought if we could raise $10,000, Chef Warehouse could probably give us two or three times the amount uh, in groceries, which would feed hundreds of people. Um, so, so that was her idea, and um, I was really interested in the topic, so I jumped in, and then as a team and, and bringing my team on, we, we ended up really quickly onboarding many chefs. And what, what was interesting in this concept is that, you know, we can't ask too much to chefs at the moment. They're obviously so tapped out and going through a real tragedy, but we thought if we only ask them to do a couple of Instagram posts before the auction and, and what they're auctioning is only 30 minutes of their time to share culinary tips or recipes, then hopefully they'll be on board. Um, and so the, the response has been incredible. To pause for one second to, to give context. So the, the name of the auction is Ask Chefs Anything, or ACA. Um, very well, well designed, um, bringing in your arts background. And the, the basic concept is that people are bidding for 30-minute Zoom conversation with some of the best chefs in the, in the country, uh, which is such a novel and easy concept uh, to do, and for people who you could barely even get maybe two minutes um, for them to come out and greet your table, now you're going to get 30 minutes with uh, these incredible minds and these incredible talents. So um, how did the kind of chefs start to come on board? Did you need to get a couple, or was it – Everyone you asked were just like, yes, absolutely, like whatever I can do to help. I mean, it's been more, it's been easier than I thought it would be, to be honest. Gaylene um, reached out to a couple of friends immediately. Eric Rupert was the first to say yes. Jeremiah Stone said yes quickly. Ignacio Matos, who's a friend of ours, said yes quickly. 
Um, and from then on, we just, you know, we I think we were really reassured and just kept going. And and as in every industry, if you start getting a couple of nice names included, you know, everyone else wants to be included. Um, but also, I think Stanford really, really excited. I think it's a difficult issue, the, the immigrant workforce. It's, it's something that they're not always allowed to talk about themselves, but they always want to support. Um, and so being able to do that without having to do much, I think, was really really interesting for chefs. Um, and, and I mean, yeah, I was anxious. I wasn't sure if people were going to be excited to, to speak 30 minutes with chefs, but it turns out they are. And, you know, quickly we ended up with 40 chefs in New York. Um, we opened the auction this week, and we raised the initial goal, which was $10,000 in the first 24 hours. Um, we have until Sunday, and the, the response has been great. And I think not only it's been great in terms of fundraising money, but also just in, in terms of, um, of raising awareness around the topic and also of, of seeing the industry come together. Um, I think it's been a really positive thing. Um, and it's been so positive that we're replicating this in L.A. next week, Philadelphia the week after, and we're now talking to a, a bunch of um, of local project managers who want to do it in their own cities, but also to sponsors who want to help us expand nationally. Um, so, yeah, more than we expected. And, and again, just to be clear on number, for every $10,000 raised, Chef Warehouse gives us um, what would cost $30,000 in retail. So that allows us to feed um, 1,000 people. It's 250 families of four. Which is amazing. I mean, it's like, I mean, for some of these people just to get them on for 30 minutes, like kind of hope it doesn't go off the rails, but 30 minutes is also like, oh, just going to do a quick countdown. And uh, I think we're all going to be curious, like the powwow after they have the conversations to be like, all right, like, how did that go? I, most of them will probably be great. I'm sure there'll be a couple horror stories for sure. Maybe one or two obsessive fans. You never, you know, you never know. I'm sure. Totally. Um, and, then, and then from a broader question, I mean, like, uh, and I think, this is one of the things that um, people, as like as this continues to stretch on, and even when they lift the shelter in place, it doesn't mean that like any of the problems have changed. It's easy for someone to be like, well, you know, if I was like Anna and I had her background and her connections and all, you know, family ran aprons, of course I could do help. Like, what are your recommendations to people who want to help and want to figure out ways to support um, not just in New York and LA, but the, all all the communities that are being affected? What are the steps that they should take? to find their own and champion their own cause. Right. I mean, look, obviously network always helps, but I feel like everyone has network. And, and in this auction, we have chefs whom we never met reaching out proactively at this point to be a part of it. So I think it's a bit of a special time. I think more than ever people are open. Um, and everyone needs help, and everyone wants to help. So I would say if, if you're eager to help, it's already a good first step because a lot of people are paralyzed right now by fear. But if you have the energy, I would, number one, read a little bit for a few days. Try to identify the, the topic that matters to you. Um, and then, tr you know, try to see what organizations are out there trying to help um, and, and, and see what, what your skills are. I mean, when I'm reaching out to, to farmers markets organizations, even though I haven't heard back from many for now because they're too busy, you know, I outline really clearly, this is what I can do. I'm not going to be the one harvesting, obviously. I can't really help you with, the, with deliveries, logistics, but I can help you communicate. I can help you create a strong messaging. I can help you have cohesive 
branding assets. I can do sponsors outreach for you, you know, so you just let me know what you need. And I think it's a lot of that right now is just asking to people what they need. And everyone needs help. I mean, even big organizations that you read about in the press are just so overwhelmed with work. It's worth reaching out. Yeah, I think that's like the most important thing, and, and just to reiterate, is that like any help helps, right? Like this is not like it doesn't need to be some grand gesture. And you touched on the point of like you know raising twenty five thousand dollars versus a million. Like twenty five thousand dollars for a lot of these communities goes such a long way. They go such a long way, even without the matching of Chef Warehouse. So anywhere to volunteer or contribute or cook meals or bring dry goods, like all of those things really help. And it also makes people feel seen. And I think one of the interesting things about you focusing on the immigrant community that like for someone that you said that's in the shadow, the chefs don't normally get to talk about, that all know that without this community, the restaurant industry as we know wouldn't exist, to be able to shine a light and make them just feel important will probably give a lot of them faith to, to stay and help rebuild this when, when things unstick a little bit. Totally. Absolutely. It's, uh, it's really a good moment to, I think, connect with people and we would have never connected before and to really also explore skills. You know, I mean, I know that as far as I'm concerned, that, that sort of case study with Ashley, anything has, has confirmed to me that uh, there is room to, to bring design and, and strategy to, to political causes. You know, I mean, it doesn't have to be either political or good looking. It could also be a more holistic strategy, and I think it's interesting to explore new skills and new yeah, areas of, of expertise. So after this, you know, after you um, fix the immigrant solution, like where else do you think restaurants are going to need help? I mean, given the landscape right now, it's pretty bleak. They're saying anywhere between 70 and 80% of restaurants are just not going to reopen, um, or they're not going to be re- reopened in a way that we are used to everyone is taking their best guesses or things like that. But I'd love to hear your thoughts um, having seen, you know, being so close to all these chefs in weeks of like where you think things might land and where people can support four months from now, five months from now, six months from now. Right. I mean, it's, I wish I could have an answer for this. I think it's really, there's no roadmap as Tom Kalika was writing this week. I think it's going to be really difficult to predict, but, um, but what you just said is right you know, restaurants to survive will most likely have to to change their game a little bit and just find other outlets. I mean, right now we're seeing more and more restaurants, for instance, um, um, offering groceries and provisions. I think it's really smart, you know, and no one can get a delivery slot on, on Amazon Fresh. Um, a lot of people don't feel comfortable going to the supermarket, so why not support your, your local fave and, and buy groceries in their place? Um, in terms of how restaurants can help, I think it's that. It's like, keep supporting, try to uh, try to change your habits, you know, whether it's for groceries, going to the supermarket or, or take out food, you know, try to see what your or, or buy wine. Can you do that through your, your favorite restaurants instead of going to bigger distribution outlets? Um, and then for the rest, I think it's like I said, just like for NGOs, you know, maybe reach out and see how you can help. You know, some restaurants, you might be a great videographer, and some restaurants might need help promoting their new offering. You know, so here you go. You can make a video for them. I really feel like everyone can bring something to the table, so it's just worth communicating. And then finally, uh, where do you see the hope in all this? I mean, you said your partner, lots of cafes. Um, you're doing everything that you can, but it does sometimes feel like a drop in the ocean, as you so eloquently put it. Where do you find the hope in this situation? Where do you think things might even be better when we get to the other side of it? 
Well, uh, yeah, I'm really, I mean, it's a little cheesy and I feel like we're all hoping for the same, but I really hope that some of the the values we're learning to put in, in action now are going to stick, right? I mean, I hope we're, we, are, we are all going to want to keep trying to support each other. I mean, what, what I'm seeing now with, with the auction getting and I are doing, I hope that spirit stays on, right? Just everyone trying to jump in and, and contributing skills. Um, I think we're all refocusing as well. We're all realizing that we don't need as much, and we can also just be really happy just connecting with great people and cooking great food and supporting things we believe in. So I think that's the one silver lining. It's just uh, changing a little bit priorities and values and, and, yeah, doing different things. I see people being more creative. Um, you know, Fernando, my husband, also has a, a creative studio called O Studio, and some people have stopped going to work there, obviously, but a lot of them are offering um, awesome creative workshops online. O Studio is going to start doing more creative workshops, and I can see there's more demand for that as well. You know, there's more, really more need for community and creativity, so I hope that stays. Amazing. Uh, so nuts and bolts, where can people go to bid on the auction, get updates for new cities, uh, chefs can contribute 30 minutes of their time, where can they find everything? So just go to accessanything.com. Um, that's the website. You'll see exactly what the action is about, who, who we are exactly, where the money is going, um, and you'll find the link to the auction site on the website as well as the Instagram. Amazing. Anna, thank you for joining us back again on Snacky Tunes, and congratulations on all the uh, hard work and returns on your efforts. Um, we are going to play another song from the archives, and then we'll be back with the second half of Snacky Tunes here on Heritage Radio Network.
This episode is brought to you by Square. We all know that this is an incredibly challenging time for our friends running restaurants and small food businesses. With social distancing in place, people are staying home and eating in, and restaurants have had to pivot to pickup and delivery only. HRN would usually be recording our podcast from our studio inside Roberta's, but since they've had to close their dining room, they've ramped up their frozen pizza production, set up a wine and grocery shop, and seen their delivery orders skyrocket. Like Roberta's, many restaurants have been changing offerings day by day as they figure out how to best serve their customers. If you run a restaurant or small business, Square has the tools to help you adapt. One of these tools is the Square online store. It lets you set up a free online ordering page with curbside pickup and local delivery so you can keep customers safe. You can deliver orders yourself or integrate with delivery partners. Its order hub lets you manage all your incoming orders in one place, no matter which delivery partners you choose to use. Square has all the tools to help you stay connected to customers, no matter where they are. See everything that's available by visiting square.com slash go slash snacky. Fletcher, welcome back to Snacky Tunes. It is so good to hear your voice and uh, we miss you and we miss seeing your face, but I'm glad that we could connect. Yeah, I, I miss you. I know I talked with Greg actually not too long ago, and I'm glad I get to do a second try in six months because I actually uh, got just mysteriously wasted right before the interview in the, in the uh, <laughs> Heritage Radio studio with your guys' liquor shelf. Oh, man. I went crazy that day. I, uh... so I'm going to pretend that one didn't happen and this was the interview. I, um was back last summer in the studio and that was a new addition since I've been back to Brooklyn and um, I went in, I thought the pounds, the, the pizza would balance it out, but um, absolutely not. There is no way that that pizza took off the edge of, of the, um, the Amaro and the whiskey and, and all that type of stuff. I had to do a bunch of takes of all of my songs that day because I couldn't remember any of my lyrics. I mean, it came a little off the rails quickly. Yeah. Um, well, listen, we uh, appreciate you taking the time to, to talk with us. And, you know, I'm so happy to hear that you and Pace and your wife are recovering because unfortunately you guys contracted the coronavirus. Yeah, it's crazy. Uh, I don't know how it happened because we were being so overly cautious. We were being cautious to the point that I was almost embarrassed about it. I'm already a bit of a germaphobe and Payson pushed it to the limit and we, we still got it. So you got it. I don't even know what how to advise people not to. You know, especially living uh, where you do in, in, in uh, Brooklyn, New York, um, you see people starting to look at the warm weather. Um, and people starting to say like, hey, we want activities, we want group gatherings. But, you know, communal trans transmission is still a big thing out there. I think probably for the first week or maybe a little bit more, I still wasn't wearing a mask yet, although Payson was. So I, I had my weird excuses for why I thought the masks were almost dangerous in my mind. And, uh, and I think I just was wrong. I definitely got it first. And then my wife got it five days after me, or at least that's when the symptoms started coming down. So, I mean, how uh, how do you feel post-recovery now that you're through the worst of it? I mean, is there 
There's a lot of lingering stuff. This is day 25 since I first got sick. Um, I still have a lot of discomfort in my lungs. There's a crazy exhaustion that happens afterwards. I mean, basically the experience we went through is at first I started feeling a little off. I I was going to bed. I felt a little off. I was probably 36 hours of me feeling not well before I first showed any fever at all. So during that time, I was just hoping that it was allergies, which I get around this time. And then maybe 36 to 48 hours after I first started feeling strange, I had a little bit of a fever, a little over 99. And my fever stayed between 99 and 100 for about four days. And then it went up and then it stayed between 100 and 102 for about five days. And then came back down between 99 and 100 for a, for a couple more days. All in all, I had a fever for 11 days straight. And then after that, uh, Payson had a fever for 12 days straight when she started. So while my fever never got over 102, it just to have a fever continuously for that long was uh, really took a lot out of my body. And, I mean that's just so awful, and especially given that in New York it's 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 uh, tight quarters all around. Um, have you guys ventured outside at all? Have you guys thought about? No, we're still get- in here, Payson. You know, she she lasted longer. We we never had any serious breathing problems, although we both had chest congestion and cough, and that cough really lingered for a long time after the fever stopped. Payson still has a cough. Mine is getting a little lower, but like I said, you, you can just tell something is wrong in my lungs. It doesn't, they don't feel right. Um, and so we don't know. There's a lot of, there's a lot of opinions about how long you have to wait until you are not contagious anymore. Yeah. We're basically going with the most conservative opinions about that because luckily we have some friends, both my downstairs neighbor is an old friend of mine and just some friends that live in the neighborhood that are willing to do all of our shopping for us and stuff. So we're just really playing it safe and staying in still. So it's been 25 days that we haven't left the apartment. I mean, what have you been doing with that time, you know, not to transition out of the seriousness of this, but you know, you're a musician, you're an artist, you're creative, um, but you've well, also when been... the lockdown first started, I was striving, uh, yeah. I was getting so much work done and I actually have just so much to do. Uh, if you, the last interview I did with you guys, I, was, I had started my own podcast, which is a yep. storytelling podcast. And so I was, I've been writing new episodes for that. I mean, I just had so much to do, but once we got sick, you end up, you're sleeping most of the day. The, really, the amount of exhaust, exhaustion that comes with it is just, I can't even explain it, but you'll be awake for two or three hours and the, you'll feel like you've been awake for 24 hours. Like your body wants to go to bed so badly in a way that I usually don't even feel when I go to bed in a normal nighttime. And that will happen over, and then you wake up and then you have two to three more hours of just basically just trying to get some food down. Payson, there's some a lot of people who have gotten this. I know a lot of people who have gotten it now because it, in New York City, it is 
so common. So we've all been trading stories. Uh, it's it seems pretty common after the fevers have been going or ending, or in Payson's case, it was about halfway through. You get really she got really bad stomach problems, mm. and so it's really hard to get food down, diarrhea and and puking, and that was. I mean, a tough part for me was right when I came out of the 11 days with the fever is is right when Payson was going into the absolute worst of it. That's when her fevers were getting up to 102. Plus, she had those stomach issues simultaneously. So while I was so exhausted that I could barely stay awake, I was really just trying to take care of my wife who was in the worst shape and just doing what I could to clean the dishes and get her some food if that if she could eat anything at all do you feel any relief because there have been some reports that once you get sick it's rarer to get sick again as long as the disease doesn't mutate and now that you've both got the antibodies or that you've been through the worst of it and you're still in New York does that give you a little bit of yeah, mental relaxation so. I know that, yeah, that there's still people saying both ways, um, but of course, this is, so I, I, I am a musician, but I make all my money at being a bartender, and that just puts you right in the middle of, of the worst of interacting with people. The last global pandemic, the uh, swine flu, I got that, and most of the bartenders I know got that as well, so it really... I don't, I plan on continuing to be a bartender when bars open, which is going to be a very slow and strange process. And I don't know how much money is going to be in bartending for a while, but it seemed to me, and I was always saying that basically was destined to get this at some point. If there's any good part about getting it this early, it's that if I had gotten it when I got, went back to work, my wife would have been way more mad at me. But right. because because we were both playing very safe, um, it seemed like it was less my fault, even though I still got it first. But yeah, well, I I think we're learning that with this disease, if you're taking all the precautions, you know, fault, you know, it's hard to attribute. Although I do see some people out there who are flaunting any sort of safety precautions and now getting it, and then asking, you know, to be treated fault could be applied to maybe some of those people. Yeah, absolutely. Well, listen, let's take a quick break. Let's get into the first song, uh, Out When It's Raining. I think Out When It's Raining is the first song? Yes, it is. Give us a little story about it. So uh, Burger Records is the record label that I'm on, and I love that record label. They reached out to all the bands that they had and asked if anyone could record a song about being in quarantine because everyone had a lot of downtime. And, uh, and so I wrote this song and recorded it. And actually, when I was recording the, the final instrument, some of the backing tracks and, and editing the vocals, I actually had coronavirus at the time. That was the first days before I got the fever. And even a couple of days where I had that between 99 and 100 fever, I was still really trying to finish it because I was excited about this compilation of quarantined songs that Burger Records was putting out. So... This is a song I recorded when I had coronavirus about being quarantined. Awesome. Well, here we go. Fletcher C. Johnson, 
remote live on Snacky Tunes. I can't even go out when it's raining. I don't wanna lie around no more. I never confuse my good intentions with yours. Send me news about my unemployment status. I've been loading around the Dollar Tree. I need you logging to veg out on a little TV. Cause I've been trapped in my home. And I need a friend. There's no place I can go to get away from my head. All those dishes looking more like a mountain Hurt my knee barely moving my feet Wrote my rent check, it's been sitting on the table for weeks You say that all I need's a real nice puzzle Don't think I'll ever do laundry again if my house was any cleaner, I wouldn't let myself in. Cause I've been trapped in my home. I need a friend. There's no place I can go to get away from my head. Come out my ears Yeah, I'll give you one But I'm still playing it cool See how tomorrow comes See how tomorrow comes See how tomorrow comes Fletcher, killer song as always um, I want to talk a little bit more about uh, Burger Records and the Quarantunes um, because they have compiled, I want to say, 150 songs. Over 150. It, 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 over 150, and it's like seven-part compilation. Um, but it's also raising money for artists. Yeah, they. it's on Bandcamp if you go to the Burger Records Bandcamp. You can see, I think it's up to eight, um, eight parts now. And Burger Records has always been about high quantity as well as quality. That's always <laughs> been their thing. They work with so many bands, so many great bands and a lot of my friends. And so yeah, everybody came back at them with songs. And the quality of this compilation has been great. They sectioned it off kind of, by genre a little bit. So I'm on the first volume one, which is kind of poppy rock stuff or even some kind of soul songs. And then the second volume is all punk songs and each one, they have a kind of a different style, but Bandcamp takes a cut of what all artists make and 
Burger Records is actually is paying that amount. So we the bands get Burger Records is taking nothing. They're actually losing money so that bands can make the full amount from anyone who buys any individual song from that band or the, any volume of the compilation or all 150 songs if you want. I mean, that's that's dedication um, from a great record label, but also shows the strength of community and people really rising above and beyond even maybe what the, <coughs> what they did before the pandemic. Um, I mean, I gotta, was, yeah. So last time I was hanging at Burger Records, and this is a couple of years back, uh, um, but both the, the owners of the Burger Records were living in the store. Like one of them was living in a little lofted area in like the storage in the back. And the other owner was living in a van outside of the place. Wow. They had no shower. They just literally every dollar that they made, they just were turning it around and putting out more records. They just, that's all they wanted to do was release records. They own a record store and they have the record label and they didn't even spend enough money to get an apartment to live in. So, uh, yeah, they're just crazy people basically. <laughs> they're, they're crazy. Um, I mean, what have you seen from other musicians that you're friends with in the community? Um, what are you guys talking about? Like what's, with the idea of touring or playing live or getting together, what has been the creative solution here? Because obviously one part of it is, is making money, although, you know, making money as, as a musician these days is tougher and tougher, but the other is having that creative outlet, you know, just because we're stuck at home doesn't mean the ideas or the creativity turns off. Oh, sure. I think there's going to be a huge output of, music and all kinds of art from everybody could because a lot of people aren't working right now it's a little tough being in close quarters with my wife and figuring out exactly what i can be working on and trying to get my head in the right space and also annoying my neighbors hmm. uh, with me singing all the time but that's just new york you know there's a lot of people everywhere working uh, yeah i don't think there's gonna be any it's not going to slow down the creativity one bit. It's really going to speed it up, but there's not going to be any shows in any comfortable way for a long time. There's not going to be tours are going to be everybody that was making their money in this way. You, you actually mentioned when you asked me to do this, you really, the only question you asked was what I thought about how, how this was going to affect bands touring Mm -hmm. financially and I've been thinking about it a lot and at first I thought I didn't really have anything to say about this because to say about my situation I've actually never made money uh, from the band every tour I've ever been on lost money and every record I've ever put out has lost money so <laughs> I felt right. like I wasn't in the position to say it's just such a tough business to break into it's a lot of work you know, I, I've every dollar I've made working since I've been an adult, I've spent on being in a band. I've spent on touring. I, you know, never went on a vacation. Every dollar that I saved was spent to go on tour. And you're hoping that eventually you can reach a place where you can quit your job and just make your money being a musician. But it's so much work. It, it not only writing the music and being on the road, but 
just sitting in front of a computer, you have to spend a lot of time emailing people. If you want to make it, there's a bunch. If I could tell anything to a musician that's starting out is not only figuring out how to tour, but someone in the band is going to have to be on the business side. There's right. a lot of boring business. I mean, I'm sure you know, doing this podcast, you got you do an hour sitting down and talking to people, but the amount of time it takes to set all this stuff up, you just need a, someone someone on the business side. Well, I'd I mean, say, we've, we've never made a penny off this show. Uh, I was going to ask you with uh, my podcast. I was hoping you had some advice. Uh, I, I, I mean, look, it's um, the money part about these endeavors has shifted over the years. And now as I'm older, obviously when, when you have a creative outlet, I think everyone has a dream. It's like, what if I did this full time, right? Like what if this was what I dedicated yeah. my life to, which is like so beautiful. Um, but it's so rare. It's really rare. And you bring well, up a good point because well, what I would say, I was actually, so what I'm getting at, yeah. what I realized is even though I, I worked a, a lot and I, I never quite made it, I think I did falter a little in that doing the business side of it, part of it. But I do know a lot of people who have made the transition yeah. into being working musicians. Um, and that's amazing. They had to work so hard for that. But those, when you make that transition, you're even poorer than you were before. I mean, the biggest bands <laughs> on Burger Records, once you transition into just being a touring and working musician, you're broke. You're so broke. They're every they're all so broke. When my friends make make it, it's awesome. And I go hang out with them at the bar, like I'm buying them the drinks. Yeah. Once you're a musician subsisting off of music, you can afford like a 12 pack of PBR at home. You can't afford the price of a drink at a bar. Yeah. Uh, but you get to be lucky enough when you're doing it the way that you're doing it or the way that I feel that we do snacky tunes as having a creative outlet that's fully your own. And there is some weird pureness when it is not your only source of income, when it can just be in many ways, just art. Yeah. And that, and that's, and I still do that and I still go on tour and I don't really, I spend a lot of time touring and you kind of have that dream you're going to make your living off of it, but it's still, I mean, it, it is more, now I have toured less, I'm actually going on vacations and touring was more fun, you know, when you have a passion for it, it's, it is very fun to do as well. Uh, but my worry with this, with what's happening is that these bands that have put in all this work writing songs and touring and and doing sitting in front of the computer and doing all this that have transitioned into being a full-time band we might lose a lot of those bands after mm. and that means that if you don't help support them now if they have to, if when they go back to those day jobs and they're not full-time musicians if you like seeing live music and you want to see a band from california play in new york you've got to help them stay on the level where they made it as full-time musician or that, you know, they might come out, but they're just, you're not going to see them coming around as much. So that's some people, we may lose some people like that. And that's sad. Yeah. Especially those bands that are just road dogs and constantly grinding to make the financials work where they can do it full time. That's where all the money is, is touring. If you're not touring, no one's making money off of records. No, Uh, you're making, you sell records on tour and that's part of it. But yeah. Um, let's get into uh, another song. The next song up we have is Call Me. Uh, what's the story behind this one? 
this is just this is just kind of a classic sweet uh, rock and roll telephone song, but I think I just thought it was cool because right now everyone's separated and everyone's spending a lot of time on their phone. This is a song I wrote about uh, my girl calling me when I'm on tour, but I think it could kind of applies to the these times. Awesome. All right. Well, here we go. Fletcher C. Johnson, call me on Snacky Tunes on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You got to call me, darling. Give me something to let me know you love me and love me so. To let me know you love me so. Super sweet, super honest, super relatable. Um, I so wanted to pure bubblegum. Yeah, I mean, but you do bubblegum well. You put your little, you put your own little snap on that bubblegum. I try. Um, so one of my favorite things that you've done in the last few years, uh, it was one of one of your last tours where you went, you played house shows. You sort of threw yeah. it out to the world. And you said, do you have a living room? Do you have this? It, it reminded it reminded me of our Boston days in the early 2000s of just opening your house up to strangers. Bands came in. Um, you, you know, had a great house with some great parties in it. Oof, those those parties were definitely not social distanced. I'll tell you that much right now. Um, that was that was another time and another era, and another show. But um you know, it got me thinking because I was like, oh, that actually might be a future way of touring, which is non-public spaces, private homes, you know, a small group of people. And, um, you know, you've seen this popping up on social media where it'll be like little string quartets or jazz bands that are socially distanced from each other in a driveway playing music. Um, do you see alternative ways of touring that are creative uh as the world starts to reopen 
I don't know. I mean, I don't know if that would work exactly how you're thinking of it because I, I was playing. It was so. This is a tour. I just I said only wanted to play in people's living rooms and basically invited anyone. I said anyone who had any friends that would come out, I would come to their house and play for yep. whoever they had. And some of those shows were to five people, and some of them were to forty people, but. For the most part, I was playing in very small spaces, so everyone was still pretty crammed in there. Got it. Uh, but it but was a can... really fun way to go on tour. That was one of the most fun tours I've ever played. Uh, I mean, you could do backyards, you know? You could do driveways. Be great. I did it in the fall, which was maybe wrong. I I had, there is, there was a second leg of the tour that was going to take me out to the West Coast that was going to be this summer, so... Obviously, that's not going to happen, but it's true. Maybe a, a backyard tour could be the key. Uh, yeah, I mean, um, something with a little outdoor space could work. And I mean, look, I think people are just, I mean, I, I, I would watch uh, almost anything if it was live music right now. If I could be in front of that that a performer with some energy and things like that. Like, I miss um. You know, it's like you miss getting in a room with people who like the same thing as you do and enjoying the person who makes it. Yeah, that's the best. Just yeah, just being there and people watching is 90% of the fun. So I love having the musician there, but it really is the community that the musician brings that is so important. So it is hard, you know, all, I, I appreciate all the bands doing the Instagram story shows, yeah. but... It doesn't, it does not have, it's nothing like a real show. Plus the audio quality is garbage. Oh yeah. The audio, the audio quality is a tough hang. Um, so as, as this stretches on, um, and I know we talked a little bit about what you were working on, but what, what do you want to keep doing while you're in quarantine to keep making music or keep performing? I mean, it sounds like maybe you're on the, the other side of the fence of, of, uh, live streams, but are you putting out songs? Are you in the studio? Do you have anything coming out? Uh, what can people be looking for from you during this time? I do. Before I got sick, um, the project I'm doing a bunch. I have so much stuff. I'm working on the oh, new yeah. season of the podcast, which I'm very excited about, yep. which is going to be less music based and it's going to, it's more, it's just more stories. The first, I've recorded, I've written one story that's about all the STDs I've had in my life. <laughs> I wrote another story that's about me living in the forest, helping people who are living up in the trees to protect the old growth um, rainforest from being cut down out on the West Coast. And those are the two I have written now, but there's really nothing about music in this season that I've seen so far. But I'm still also working on a bunch of music, and I actually... I'm going to be releasing the the biggest thing I've been working on. Oh wait, have you lost me? No, you're there. Okay, the, I'm working on a uh, on an epic 33 song outtakes, b-sides, rarities, and live Fletcher C. Johnson record, spanning back to when I was in college. Uh, Amazing. So that's going to be, that's just, uh, I thought, to come up with a little extra scratch, I'm going to make a podcast companion episode for that uh, compilation so that it tells kind of the history of how I got to my first album, A Splutcher C. Johnson, and it's going to have a bunch of weird songs, including 
me and King Tuff's old band, The Curl, and um, and a bunch of bands I was in over the years. That's incredible. Well, listen, I want to make sure that we have enough time for uh, this last song, Wintertime. Uh, but before you tell us the story about that one, uh, where can people follow along? Where can people check out your music? Where can people co- go to support? Fletcher C. Johnson, baby. Yeah. Uh, you just type it into, into the Google. You'll find my Bandcamp or my Instagram. Awesome. And, uh, oh, you know what? Before we go, uh, at-home cocktail, any tips? For people who are shaking it up or pouring themselves one while they're stuck at home? Ooh, you didn't ask me about this in advance. I'm, I don't know. Even though I'm a bartender, I, you think I should know this, but, you know, I'm a beer and shot guy. There you go. I mean, that's that's sort of what I've been doing. Just making sure the beer is cold and the whiskey's there, and I, it's been it's been all right. I was just assisting on pure edible marijuana while mastering this beat. Rarities and outtakes album before I got sick, but I'm too tired, too tired to eat the weed now. Um, yeah. Um, all right. Well, listen. Let's uh, let's get one last song. Tell me the story about Wintertime real quick. Wintertime. I'm pulling out my new trick, which is I've been trying to teach myself the piano for a couple years now, and while I spend most of my time noodling around on like a two hundred dollar Yamaha keyboard, my buddy Mike. Uh, Lewis gave me a really good deal to buy his Wurlitzer off of him. So I'm going to, this one is me playing on the keys live for the first time. Amazing. Well, Fletcher, thank you so much. We really appreciate you taking the time out of your schedule. I hope that you feel better. I hope Hayson feels better. And, uh, you know, I hope to see you soon, either uh, playing a show or behind the bar. We'll have a whiskey and we'll do a, we'll drink a beer. All right. Sounds good. Be safe out there. Thanks, bud. All right, here we go. Fletcher C. Johnson, one last time here on Snacky Tunes on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. College is dumb, but we're having some fun in the winter time. The winter time, I'm making some friends despite this place that we're in. In the winter time, the winter time. No. to got my own room all my stuff inside a place where I can hide been banging around with this girl I found but she broke my heart it's not her fault she says that she don't know where life should go and I guess that's fine Cause I don't know about mine And they don't want us kids To know who Lurie is So let's 
Let's dress in drag and let them laugh and then we'll see if anyone feels like everyone feels like me. This program is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.